0: You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All comments are current at the time of publication. It's a podcast that's brought to you by the barristers at 1 Crown Office Row. Hello LawPod listeners. After a long summer silence, I'm delighted to announce that our autumn term starts with the first of our new presenters, Barrister Jim Duffy of 1 Crown Office Row. You're in safe hands. Jim has extensive experience across a wide range of legal areas, including clinical negligence, inquests, human rights, tax, employment, discrimination and many others. Jim qualified as a solicitor in Scotland and then transferred to the English Bar. He's a devil for punishment. On top of the day job, he ran our busy human rights blog as commissioning editor for two years. And he's now stepped forward as one of our new team of presenters. I'll hand you now over to Jim.
1: A scandal taking place behind closed doors. That's how the chair of the Association of Clinical Psychologists has described the role of so-called psychological experts in cases involving children. Cases that can result in, the, in the separation, in some cases, of those children from their parents. So, is there a secret injustice going on in the family court, or is it a more nuanced issue with arguments on either side? I'm certainly not going to attempt to answer that question myself, and I don't have to because joining us on the podcast are two of my colleagues in chambers here at One Crown Office Row who specialise in family law. Um, Richard Ager has been practising now for about 40 years, 22 of them at the <laughs> that bar. <long>. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, And you are chair, Richard, of the Kent and Sussex Family Law Barristers Association. So thank you for joining us. And Claire Chiborowska is also an experienced family practitioner who often appears in private law applications involving children, care proceedings and cases relating to FGM. Thank you for joining us, Claire. Morning. So Claire, earlier this summer, the Observer newspaper carried out an investigation into the use of psychologists by family courts to provide expert evidence in relation to parental alienation. Before coming on to what's meant by that phrase, perhaps we can start with a basic question that I suspect has a slightly more complicated answer than than people might think. What is a psychologist?
2: So a psychologist in family proceedings is usually an expert uh, that the court decides it's necessary in a case to have an assessment of either the parents or usually the child or the dynamics in the family to try and help the court make decisions about where the child should live and what contact and time they should spend with each of their parents. And, and so a psychologist is, is an expert, so they have to comply with the expert's practice direction, and they are usually jointly instructed in family proceedings They will have a letter of instruction, and the court will then approve that letter, which will have various questions in that need to be answered. A lot of the time, it can relate to, for example, the attachment between a parent and the child, and it can also look at where there's harmful conflict in a child's life to to make recommendations about how that conflict can be resolved. They might have a very specific question which needs answering, which could be where, for example, a child hasn't had contact with a parent for a very long time, what is the best way to reintroduce that child to the parent? Uh, So often the courts will need specialist advice from a psychologist to help unpick what is often a very complex situation.
1: Yes, so psychologists are working to understand, I guess, the dynamics in terms of what's happening with the child, but also in terms of what's happening with the wider family. Is, is Is that right?
2: That's right, yes.
1: Yeah. And, and what's meant then by parental alienation? Where does that concept come from?
2: So parental alienation is a concept that has been around for a very long time. In in very simple terms, parental alienation is a situation where one parent, either deliberately or just because of that that they're functioning, alienates the child from the other parent. It's a group of behaviors, and in fact CAFCAS would term Use the term alienating behaviours rather than parental alienation that a parent will use with the child. So, for example, in a case where, let's say, one parent believes the other parent has been abusive, but there's no independent evidence of that, the parent can then convince the child that their other parent is dangerous. And they can convince the child that they should not be spending any time with that parent. And it's a form of very deep psychological manipulation of the child because the child then becomes aligned with the parent who is pushing the alienation and then becomes reluctant and in many cases refusing to see their other parent.
1: That can have an emotional impact, Richard, in terms of the relationship with that other parent, but presumably also a a very real practical impact in terms of what might happen. In family court proceedings?
0: An emotional and actual impact, a, a very real impact, because at it its most extreme relationships can end, atmospheres of distrust. A parent planting the idea that the other parent is bad, using the term very loosely, into the minds of the children can cause the most serious emotional and psychological harm to the child. In practical terms, issues about will that child go to spend time with the other parent when they go to spend time with that other parent what will their behavior be will they run as it were back to the other parent making themselves unsafe as part of that process but also you know parenting is part of the fundamental building blocks of a child's background and history and for one parent to damage that in the mind of the child can create lasting lifelong difficulty which will need to be addressed if, if, if it is caught in time.
2: What can often happen is it starts off very slowly uh, and it takes place over a number of years and it can involve essentially implanting false memories into the child so that they feel the child then grows up thinking that their, their other parent harmed them, or at least harmed the parent that they live with. And so it's it's completely manipulating the child's own recollection of their childhood in order to alienate the child from the separated parent.
1: And in terms of the impact upon the parent who is being accused, as it were, of parental alienation that can result in in an order for therapy, is that right? Could you just talk us through that, Richard?
0: It's part of the tools that are available to a court, yes, absolutely. I mean, there is a long process to reach that point. I mean, I'm sure we're going to come on to discuss in what circumstances allegations of parental alienation are made. Sometimes they're genuine, absolutely real, and need to be identified as such and worked with as such. But sometimes, where there are allegations of domestic abuse, coercive control, financial control and the like, sometimes the counter-allegation comes in of parental alienation, which on close examination doesn't bear out, but is a, a simple response to the allegations of domestic abuse. And it's, that's one of the dilemmas for us and for the courts when considering these issues. Are they genuine? If so, what is the impact? If they're genuine, how do we then address these issues? Therapy is certainly one of the tools. And persuading families to engage in a therapeutic process to address these issues can be very, very difficult. First of all, there is the issue of cost. There is the issue of availability, and there is the issue of time that's passing, because of course, childhood is a short period in life, and waiting for resources to be devoted to this family, where we know the courts, sadly, not through COVID, I stress, are rammed and getting hearing dates in a half-decent scale. And this isn't being critical, this is saying it as it is 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 enormously difficult i mean we look we're talking about final hearings in the new year now um, in this sort of case and we're sitting here in uh, early september and in terms of impact on behavior and entrenching responses to it that that length of time can be can be massive but equally where you have those with money then identifying a therapist and carrying out the work can be arranged relatively quickly. Uh, Going back to your initial discussion with Claire about what is a psychologist, the term psychologist is not a protected profession. And one of the difficulties in, in these cases is making sure that the person that you want to instruct to carry out an assessment or therapy has the relevant experience qualification background, but also the regulatory Background so that if things go wrong, in the rare cases they go wrong, there is something that can be done. And membership of the British Psychological Society, etc., or the BACP, the British Association of Counsellors and Psychotherapists, are clear indicators that there is a process that where things go wrong, it can be addressed. But therapy in those cases where in the past families might have qualified for public funding is enormously difficult. CAFCAS the organisation that helps the court and provides reports and advice, will make recommendations. And they have set up fairly short periods of work for families to do. And for the moment, I've got a blank on their names. I'm terribly sorry, Claire, if you can help there. But they are limited. They're, they're limited in terms of availability and they're awaiting lists. And they are very short pieces of work. It's like cognitive behavioural therapy. It's a short period of six sessions to adapt the behaviour as best we can, but doesn't address the underlying issue. And it's getting people into family therapy to address it because you need the parent who is alienated, you need the alienating parent, and you need the children. And over a process of perhaps individual work first, to bring the family to the point in which they can engage together as a family to work on the problem. That is a lengthy and very
1: expensive process. So, Claire, in, in some situations then that can be paid for privately. So there, it sounds like there's something of a, a two-tier system in, in that respect.
2: Absolutely. I think where there's a recommendation for therapy, it's very, very unlikely that anybody is going to be able to have that therapy on the NHS when you have a guardian appointed for the child the guardian can ask for an assessment a psychological assessment but the legal aid agency does not cover treatment so sometimes you have a case where you can have the assessment and it can tell you what needs to happen but then it can't ever be implemented unless somebody has the funds to pay for the therapy now sometimes and um, there are cases and I've I've been involved in in cases the local authority may step in. The local authority may say that actually the child is at risk of such significant harm that there is threshold for public law proceedings. And so the court has the power under section 37 to direct the local authority to undertake an assessment as to whether a child is suffering significant harm. So the court can direct a local authority to see whether they do meet the threshold for care proceedings. And in those circumstances, the local authority may be in a position to fund some therapy. Although I add that local authority resources are absolutely stretched to the maximum, and certainly as a matter of principle and a matter of course, local authorities do not generally pay for therapy either. And so what you can often have in a case where it has reached an extreme level, and I think it's important to remember that the the alienation is of the child. And so a parent might have alienating behaviours, which is Kafkas described as being on a spectrum. And so you might be able to identify that, for example, one parent speaks very negatively about the other parent or one parent refuses to make the child available for contact with the other parent. You could describe that as an alienating behaviour. But if the child's still willing to go, is simply stuck in the middle of the conflict, that is not alienation of the child alienation of the child is when the child refuses all contact with a parent for no other apparent reason. One reason that the the court could look at is whether they've been exposed to domestic abuse, which is when you get the complexities arising where there are allegations of domestic abuse and counter allegations of parental alienation.
1: Yes, very difficult I imagine for the courts, which is certainly why they need, what expertise they can get, presumably, from outside professionals. And can can I just ask, as you know, one of the concerns raised in the Observer investigation and reporting was around potential conflicts of interest, where you've got psychologists who are instructed jointly in a case and who then refer to people they know or people they may have a business relationship with to carry out work that can, presumably in in privately paid cases, run into the many thousands. To what extent, Claire, is is that a practical problem that you've observed and you'd experience?
2: So I think there are very few experts who, at the moment, are willing to take on what's either called high conflict cases or cases where parental alienation is alleged. And those that do remain available are very expensive. Why is that? Why, why are they so reluctant to get involved? I, I think and I, I, I can only base it on, on my experience and perhaps Richard uh, may be able to comment as well, I think it's because they are so difficult and they have to work with parents who are absolutely in, in entrenched high conflict positions and trying to unpick that even as an experienced qualified psychologist, It's very, very difficult for the people working with a family in this situation. And that's why it's so expensive, because there has to be a huge amount of time dedicated by professionals working in this area, that it then reduces the pool of available experts. And so you then have a situation where the experts, if they are recommending therapy, there's an even smaller pool of therapists available to deliver the work, Uh, And I think what the investigation has uncovered is a situation where the person who is assessing the family goes on to deliver treatment, and that's essentially considered unethical. Uh, And there are good reasons why you want to keep the court expert distinct from anybody who's treating the parents or the child. Uh, And and so I, I actually agree that that is something that definitely needs to be looked into, because the court needs to have confidence in an expert's recommendation, because often in a parental alienation case the only remedy available to the court is to transfer the child's resident to the non-alienating parent and if there hasn't been a relationship for let's say sometimes in these cases it can be two to three years where a parent hasn't seen their child and where that child has been alienated from them and so simply transferring their residence back to a parent that they've not lived with that they've believed for whatever reason, to have been a risk to them and to have harmed their family is extremely complex.
1: One barrister was quoted in the Observer investigation, Richard, is, as describing parental alienation as a go-to tactic being used by domestic abusers. D- does that reflect your experience? It is often thrown back at the
0: person domestic abuse. And as we know from our growing knowledge and understanding of domestic abuse in all its formats and the concern the courts have expressed and through Practice Direction 12J, all of the authorities that have come out recently, h and and the like. It does feel like a go-to tactic. It, it feels an unkind and cruel tactic when there is no basis for it. But often the... Alleged domestic abuser will say, Well, hang on, the reason why the children are refusing to come to see me is not because of what I'm alleged to have done. It's because the other parent has been alienating my children from me. And that has the impact of lengthening proceedings, it has the impact of raising costs, it has the impact of raising the possibility of further expert evidence with all that that entails. And more particularly, it increases delay. And as we know from the, the Children Act, delay is prejudicial to the welfare of children and decision-making through the courts. And that is something, I'm, whether I'm acting for the person alleging domestic abuse or the person alleging alienation, I am very careful to check that this is a real, real allegation because if it's not then we need to identify the actual issues in the case and get those determined so that a proper plan can be
1: put in place for assisting the family with the difficulties that it has. So it's, it's a difficult unpicking exercise then, Claire, not only for the court and the psychologists, but also for the the, the barristers and the solicitors involved in representing these families.
2: Absolutely. And I think it comes back to themes that we've touched on in in other podcasts, earlier podcasts, about fact-finding hearings and the need for the court to establish the facts as to what is actually happening. There have been cases where the courts have reminded us that not all allegations need to be tried, that there are often allegations that actually amount to bad behaviour on the part of both parties, but do not necessarily amount to abuse or parental alienation. And the court is is effectively saying we can't clog up our court system with such, you know, so many numerous fact finding hearings to get to the bottom of every issue the parties have ever had in their relationship. And it's differentiating those cases from cases where there has been very serious coercion, domestic abuse, uh, financial control that has led um, to a, a parent saying it is unsafe for my children to spend time with this person because of their behavior towards me, and differentiating those cases where a parent has said, well, actually, since separation, I started off seeing my children, but slowly but surely, I'm now in a position where I haven't seen them for a year, and I believe it's because they are being alienated from from me. That is the difficulty for lawyers, uh, for courts, and for professionals who are very, very busy and often we have a process in private law where all parties are spoken to by CAFCAS on the telephone. CAFCAS prepare a safeguarding letter to the court setting out the key issues. And those are very short, brief telephone calls uh, based on only the information that's contained in the party's applications.
1: And it's a snapshot?
2: It's a snapshot, exactly that. And it, it may not be evident until much further into the proceedings uh, that there are serious issues that need to be grappled with. And as Richard said earlier, the delays in the court system can mean we're talking, you know, four to five months before a case is even listed for a first hearing where the court can make no real decision at a first hearing. You're at the very, very early stages of your case. So it can often take in excess of 12 months, often 18 months to two years before you're in a position to really make a proper decision.
1: Richard, it seemed to me that the, the the concern underlying all of this is the idea of psychologists who are not regulated by any any particular recognised body making decisions that can have a lifelong impact upon families, but but primarily upon children. And one thing that struck me was that the the, the judges in the family courts are themselves specialists. In, in, in these issues. and presumably they they're not as it were hanging on every word of the psychology experts and, and have a good instinct themselves for, for unmeritorious claims of parental alienation. Is that something that we can rely on or or is it too complicated for judges to to be expected to be able to carry out that exercise effectively and safely?
0: You're right, Jim, that all judges hold a family ticket and have undergone training in this area of law. And you have judges across a full range of experience and expertise from those deputy district judges who are being increasingly used, particularly in Sussex, because there is a dearth of full-time district judges who come with a real live understanding of the issue from their practice within family law in any event through to, with all due respect to those who take on family work at any judicial level, who are having to deal with very complex cases when their previous legal background was, say, in housing or civil practice, and they're having to take on these very, very complex cases. The, the, The legal test for experts is that they are necessary to resolve the issues justly and there's very clear statutory guidance on when a court should look for expert assistance and not and it's usually when there is no one before the court with the relevant expertise like a social worker or a guardian involved although even they may say this case is beyond me and we need this expert assistance. And you have to think about the effect of the time that's going to take, the impact on the children, the impact on the timetable. So judges don't unquestioningly appoint an expert to advise. They, they really examine the basis on which they are being sought. They ch- see the CV of the expert. They are meant to check the qualifications and expertise of the expert. That they have that relevant expertise. That they are that the costs, the questions that are going to be asked of that expert by the parties, so that there is an agreed uh, letter of instruction to the single joint expert in the case. It is a fine tooth comb approach. Now, issue arose in a, a recent case in June. The Guardian picked up on it and reported on it, a case of her Honour Judge Nicola Davies, where. A psychologist was appointed at an earlier stage in the proceedings. The advice that person gave seemingly was sound from subsequent judgments but a point was taken on an application for a rehearing that the psychologist was not a member of one of the accredited organizations and an attempt was made to reopen the, the original final hearing. The judge took the view That yes, there was a concern with the membership and qualification of this expert. But at the time the application was made for that expert, that expert was an agreed expert. The evidence they gave was, if ever there is a word word I hate in family law, it's standard, but it was fair, you know, it was the usual advice. And it moved the case forward. And so the judge. At the application for a rehearing, not an appeal, a rehearing, said, "Well, may or may not be a member of the, an appropriate association, may not have that regulatory background or that that ability to challenge through that." But actually, the advice was fine, and it should stand. But against that, we know that the president of the family division, our most senior judge, has said. The court must be careful to only appoint experts with relevant expertise when parental alienation is raised. Pseudoscience, which is not based on any established body of knowledge, will be inadmissible. And he stressed the need for appropriately qualified and regulated experts to be used. So, firstly, the choice of the expert is very carefully analysed by the judge in order to be authorised. But, secondly, if that expert provides advice, it is likely to be followed by the judge. And the judge will have to have very good reason to part from that expert advice, having found that it was necessary to resolve the case to have that expertise. A long answer, sorry. Jim. No,
1: that's that's very helpful. I mean, it, it sounds like that it would be very difficult to do otherwise, particularly given that in this particular procedure... The parties have agreed on the expert, the parties have seen the CV, presumably in the case you've just described, they were under no illusion from the beginning that that particular expert was a member of a particular organisation, so very difficult then to to dismiss an opinion if it's one that was unexpected, for example. I mean, a lot of this um, ties in, doesn't it, Richard, with the question of transparency in family courts, because a, a major issue identified certainly in the investigation we've been discussing is that a lot of this is happening behind closed doors the public doesn't have much of an insight into what is going on but in general terms there are moves afoot to try and improve transparency in the the family courts could you just talk us through what's happening in that respect of
0: course it is you're right there are moves to increase transparency and to provide for open justice, which enables proper scrutiny of decision making to take place. In family law, there are two pieces of legislation which feel very heavy handed. The first is section 12 of the Administration of Justice Act of 1960. And the second is section 97.2 of the Children Act of 1989, both of which effectively say, if you read it, that Nothing should be published which would tend to identify the child of the family. And it brings with it the heavy consequences of contempt and, and punishment. Now, over the years, there have been moves towards increasing transparency. And the previous president, Sir James Mumby, was very passionate about this. And he issued a practice direction enabling accredited journalists to attend court. I remember the day it came into force, and there was I at Brighton County Court, and there was a Daily Mail journalist, and we all went, "Oh, what's this?" But he was there; he attended, he asked relevant questions of people, but didn't publish anything. And that began the process. It was then subsequently developed that legal bloggers, legal qualified lawyers who want to publish. So, for example, Lucy Reed from the west country who is absolutely brilliant on this top topic through the transparency project and other organisations are now able to apply for permission to and to attend these hearings and increasingly that is happening and the doors are opening up as you you mentioned the observer investigation into the use of experts the case we were discussing a few moments ago about this particular psychologist was in the Guardian newspaper. There is increasing public analysis going on of what is happening uh, and the basis on which decisions are made. And that can only be a good thing because it enables the public to understand what is happening, what is the basis on which very serious decisions are being made, and, and enables a proper analysis the current president, Sir Andrew McFarlane, has taken this even further, and he has published a review of the transparency rules, and he is committed to taking this forward. I haven't seen where that has led to as yet, but I'm confident that rules are being thought of which will continue the balance of privacy, confidentiality against public knowledge which is, after all, part of Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to respect for privacy and family life, to enable that balance to be shifted so that we can read about, hear about, see how the family courts operate and have a better understanding in the country of how these very, very important
1: decisions are made. I mean, that Article 8 balance that you've described is, is hard enough in the sorts of cases that I deal with in, in public law and in, in the different areas of private law. It's difficult to conceive of a more intimately private sphere in some ways than, than the sphere that you're practicing in. So it must be clear, a really tricky exercise to, to to try to come up with a system, as obviously the family court president is trying to do, that is capable of ensuring that that balance is struck properly in in individual cases.
2: Absolutely. And I think that just shows that each case does have to be considered on its own facts, because there may be very good reasons not to publish judgments if there are very particular facts. And also there's, I think, a drive as well to really understand the effects on a child, that if all the allegations for example if you've got allegations of sexual abuse and really serious domestic violence that a child could grow up and read those allegations in a published judgment i think the we have to look at the impact on the child of that scenario and also on the victims of having their extremely private and distressing issues put out in the public domain and so i think To some extent there is a a way around that which is where an overview of the facts is given but not the specific detail and then the judicial reasoning and the decision-making process of the judgment is is published uh, suitably anonymized Uh, because i think if if you're somebody who's made let's say 10 or so allegations of really serious sexual abuse is it right that that is then published in in the public domain and so these are big questions that have to be asked and, and I think there are no easy solutions and one can see the very genuine reasons why there is such a drive for publication and to make sure that proceedings are transparent you know, as much as possible, but that does have to be balanced with the issues of privacy.
0: Let alone the practical impact of a judge and the lawyers in a case combing a document to ensure that there is anonymisation, and because it's a human arrangement, missing something, and the risk of identification by a name of a school, for example, being left in, or a, a geographical area. The risks are high, so the balances are enormously difficult. I suggest that the public needs a greater understanding of the basis on which decisions are made, particularly when we know that even now in quite reputable publications the words custody and access are still used which went way back when and the, the law has moved and it's part of an understanding of the basis on which decisions are made and the limited powers that a court has to reorder families.
1: That needs to be understood. Uh, pre- presumably you've got the rescue jigsaw identification of individuals but also just the risk of jigsaw identification of issues because I guess you could with the best will in the world produce an overview document that tried to convey what problems were going on in in a particular family wouldn't take too much to start to be able to read between the lines of what was happening and, and identify exactly what was happening or at least be in a position to speculate upon it and and no doubt adds to the stress that a child is going through quite considerably. Well, it's fascinating and hideously complex equal measure for all those professionals involved in it. Um, I don't envy you both. Richard Ager, Claire Chiborowska, thank you for joining us on LawPod UK.
0: LawPod UK is produced by One Crown Office
1: Row.